Welcome to Land Thieves by Bill Watkins, read by the author, dedicated to H.R. 40 and Native America. Indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired. Article 26.1, UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Preface. Recently I found three family memoirs in the heart of American sin. Whether they're real or not is an old philosophical question tackled by the best, starting with Plato. They're real to me, especially where fact and fiction seem to merge into a new state of enhanced reality. An effort to improve our lives through genre-blurring realizations and heightened historical musings. Enjoy this collection of stories, not a pure escape, starting with explorer and part-time stage actor Robert Watkins, born 1584, of Talgarth, Wales, then to slave owner and sometimes reluctant soldier Bo Watkins, born 1805, from Horse Pasture, Virginia, an area natives called Wingandakoa, finally to Bob Watts, born 1925, of Illinois, a CIA man with lots of secrets to tell, and recovery, and hope. And the night shall be filled with music, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents like the Arabs, and as silently steal away. Part 1. The Land Thief. Where's the heart of American sin? I don't know. I, I checked Google and it wasn't there. As the true Tao can never be spoken, it's time to present the long-lost memoir of my 10th great-uncle Robert, who came to America in 1608, one year after Captain John Smith, and 11 years before the first African slaves arrived. He was so excited to conquer, as you will see. He set down his impressions on paper, his dream to live like a king and write it all down to most likely increase his fame. Not unlike Captain Smith himself, whose writings helped establish his legend. As with Smith, no one fully knows how much of what Robert Watkins wrote down was true, but can't one accept a certain amount of credibility in taking the time to record events in a diary as they happen? Embellishments and decoration help any writer feel connected to the craft and deserve forgiveness, while his stated attitude toward non-white, non-Christian peoples might deserve condemnation. Enjoy, if you can bear the cross of antiquated language, racism, and ignorance, some of the building blocks of this the greatest democracy on earth. My wonderful history of Virginia, New England, and all land formerly enjoyed by the savage heathens and their wicked ways, their ignorance of the true God, Jesus Christ, the son and protector of white English and other European peoples with maps, figures, and illustrations of our superior qualities, sure to win over and convert the infidels. Divided into six books by would-be lord and knight, Sir Robert, F. Watkins and his sons, Massachusetts Council on the Eve of Our First Thanksgiving Proclamation, June 1676. Preface and Honor, Ode and Accorded. To our right and gentle King, James II, High Duke and Admiral of all our fleets, we owe this special praise and thanks for the completion of this work which chronicles, to our best knowledge, the happenings and events in establishing a permanent home settlement colony to serve as outpost for the English dominance of the world by land and sea. All glory to Lord God Jesus Christ, our Savior in heaven and on earth, 
papists no longer plaguing our throne nor our politics praise the name of God across all lands. We have endeavored to ruin the chance of savage upheaval and revolt. We know they mean to do us harm, and we hold our good Lord up and our King as shield against the woes they commit against our brethren. All glory and honor to God on high. There are in this volume stories of conquest, violence committed by heathens against our occupation, resistance to knowing the true Lord as set forth in the Holy Bible. We have had success on our crops, the tobacco plantations more and more productive with every day of peace, following years of an unholy bloodshed, perpetrated at our cost by an ungrateful infidel tribe lacking appreciation for our God, but knowing full well the power of our sword and our musket. At the time we write these books upon the pages of history, peace reigns in New England, Virginia, New York, the Massachusetts Council now in session to claim Thanksgiving, Connecticut armies awaiting next orders, a few papists in Spanish Florida left between us and the coast, but we will have it some day, glory and honor to God on high. We will have victory on all sides by God's will and grace alone, hunt for the savage enemy, our King St. Peter on one side, our own Church of England on the other, and we shall have this land to litter, charge with cannon fire, developing roads and the glorious noise of commerce to serve our king. Panegyric lines. Oh, read, you mortal cur, the love lines authored by the ship across the sea. Prepare the sail, Captain John Smith and company of Britain's leading worldview. Our muskets on the lookout for death as savage pagan ways. Bringing in line with us our King James, unifying the world like Charlemagne, our sword the shield between us and Spanish rule across the continent of Columbus greed. We have taken the cross to foreign lands in search of glory, God, and redemption of infidel souls unknowing of the true path to heaven. The admirals do the king's bidding and God's, wrapped in one for the expansion of the throne. Gold is abound, the food and tobacco bountiful, thanks to God and the goodness of England's American reach. The savages call their land something we cannot understand, so we rightly changed all names to English, will one day establish all lands as such. Captain John Smith, lover and friend of high seas and adventure, we killed the druid ways and will do so here to the savage natives who want our blood. May God be swift to support our musket and cannon fire to scare them away. Bring us peace in our ways, in laws, O mighty God. Chapter the First, Telling of Talgarth, Wales, wherein the author is born and makes childhood. I was born to a carpenter, John F. Watkins of Talgarth, and to his lovely wife, Louise, on March the 7th, year of our Lord, 1584, just several days from when our wondrous High Queen Elizabeth did assign into law the consent of all people not Christian and their lands to fall subject to the sword of one Sir Honorable Grace and Admiral Walter Raleigh of High Adventure and Crusade. He ordered exploration of a land we called Virginia, after the virgin Queen Elizabeth in her honor and praise, rightly changing the name the natural inhabitants had for it. We swiftly knew their way of pagan life was no match for God's goodness, the Bible a beacon to all hope and ascent to mighty heaven. And while Sir Walter Raleigh ordered to explorate the coast of America, I did successfully explorate the vacuums of womanhood to explode onto the green valleys and hills of my native home. So in love at first sight with our land and home Talgarth was I that on my third birthday, 
I recall rolling naked into the River Wye whilst a band played my favorite song, the village blacksmith, an elder named Jones, fishing me out when the tide nearly extinguished my whole being, a sort of return to womanhood's vacuum until thrust out by a larger-than-average-sized manhood about my person. Such was my beginnings as an adventurer and lover of the open sea. I tasted my first grog deep into my fifth year, my father a fan of the fiery liquid, as it doth give men cheer and forgetfulness at the doldrums of home and green hills and valleys, sparkling summer rains to keep our streams flowing year-round. We were spoiled and knew it, our parties raucous and the music loud. There was a Celtic poet within, but father doused it before it led to a profitless life, suggested I do the same. Worship Christ, mind your manners and your job, was his fair advice throughout my childhood. I would get into trouble, but nothing too vexing, for I loved my father and mother, wanted nothing to in turn vex them. Upon my seventh year, I took notice of the butcher's youngest lass, a relation named Anne Davis, her locks of golden blonde coloration, and a smile a British whaler knows well as he tusks the blazing white ivory out of the sea. She was a year younger than I and barely speaking, yet I was certain we would one day marry. Then upon my eighth birthday or thereabouts, my mother did us remind me of the saddest fact ever a mother uttered in Talgarth, Wales, or worldwide. Remember, Robert, little Annie Davis is your first cousin, so forget anything about marrying or courting her, you hear? While I knew this to be true, I did hope that no one would mind, look to another wind, when out the back door of life we two lovers did marry in secret, and in love with nothing but a goodly life in front of us to dream and acquire. A bitterness rocked the larboard side of my boat, my childhood convexed on the rocks of society's cold rules and judgments. Dreams of being with my love, the forbidden Anne, turn us to dreams of conquest, adventure, and riches abroad. I knew that if I acquired enough cold currency and titles, even land in adventuring abroad, I could come back to Talgarth, marry Anne, and run away for good. For who could stop a rich, entitled man with a resume full of conquest, his ship in full supply of overseas achievement? Other actors on the stage of my life were my four brothers, two sisters, and the memory of four siblings who perished before the soil could take firm hold their seed. My living brothers are named Arthur, James, John, and Stephen. My fair sisters penned Louise and Charlotte. Our lost brethren were Timmy during childbirth, Catherine with the whoop, Anne from Bee Sting, and Eleanor from Drool. We marked their stones toward the sea at St. Gwendolen's, one of Talgarth's highest points, and adorned them with gifts on the Annam in the Christian way. Praise the Lord. I am the youngest, Arthur the oldest, then Louise, Charlotte, Stephen, John, and finally James, being closest in age to I, a partner in my plans and dreams. James, of course, was named for his uncle prior to that man's fame alongside and in service to Captain John Smith on Virginia shores. Again, it is said the land there had many names by savage root, but we have seen fit to change them and own them as Christians and for their benefit. Needless to say, I am wary of bees and infection, and every time my mother doth cough, I am reminded of Catherine's plight, and mother did in the past rise to dry my tears and console. Once I was infected with the Welsh plague of 1591, but our competent physician and family healer, Dr. Watson, let the bad blood out, and I healed. He said the yellowness would depart my skin in the future, but on occasion, I am convexed with anemic fits, shudders, and generally poorly attitudes. Each Christmas, I carry meat to Dr. Watson's cottage as a gift of gratitude for saving my life. 
He keeps a jar of leeches by the front door for emergencies, offers to let more bad blood out each year, but I smilingly refuse with cheer, good grace, and blessings of the Lord. The fierce thing I did see in my youth was the demise of my Uncle Richard, who died suddenly and violently of sweat. We called on Dr. Watson, who arrived with his tools too late, causing him to curse at his callers for wasting his time and exposing his leeches to the light. The trip was amended and made worthwhile when Uncle Richard's wife fell faint. Dr. Watson swiftly cut a primary vein, let out her grief, and we buried Uncle Richard next to my kin on the hill at St. Gwendolyn's. Every time I walk past our family stones, I sigh relief that we have Dr. Watson and modern English medicine to save my own body from encorpsing on the hill above our town. At the time of writing this expeditious account, Dr. Watson is dead at the ripe age of 39. Were I to live such a full and long life, I would hope to live as well as did Dr. Watson, who saved so many of ours. He willed his jar of leeches and practiced to his daughter Elizabeth, a foolish notion, and readily rectified when her husband, Chip, took over to save the lady from such a strenuous and blood-filled work. How fortunate are our women folk who have us men to guide them, else they might design a life of work and adventure abroad. Then what would the men do, and what would become of our homes and society as a whole, I fairly pose? Other highlights from my youth, or lowlights, if the perspective doth fit. Politically, the royals were in a frantic whirl at times, meaning nothing disrespecting or demeaning to our God-chosen leaders. When I was but three, frolicking naked into the river Wye near my home, Mary, Queen of Scots, was deemed traitor to England and beheaded for it. Sometimes, when nodding to sleep or upon waking, I see Mary's pretty youthful face and wonder at any violence to it being fully necessary. But who am I to question the divine actions of the crown? But who am I to question the divine actions of the crown? Were I to do so, I could be rightly flogged or beheaded myself, and that would keep me from my chosen profession. The Navy and Adventure Abroad Before Mary lost her place, our Virgin Queen was in competition with Spain and other nations for ownership of lands in the New World, not occupied or owned by Christian princes, as it is written to Sir Walter Raleigh before he consigned a trip in 1584. That was at the exact time of my birth, seeming to presage the life I would one day lead of high adventure on the seas and lands we called America. Raleigh's men set off and landed in 1585, established Roanoke nobly, only to leave it, sail home to learn of the colony's failure and sad demise, most likely at the hands of savage natives who had not learnt our Bible nor our civilized way of life. When I read of Cabot, Drake, then Sir Walter Raleigh's adventures and the colony's fate, I became more and more interested in serving at sea. Eventually, my Uncle James Watkins impressed top admirals by the time Jamestown was founded in honor of Mary, Queen of Scots' unifying son, James VI of Scotland, who had by God's smooth will and grace been crowned King of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland altogether as James I. What a fine moment in our history to unite us all so, as was always meant to be. I was sure nothing could go wrong with us politically evermore, with such a strong union between our glorious isles. My optimism ran even higher still when my tutor taught us of our defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588, while Elizabeth was still queen. Please forgive my jumping back a moment, but here I am not a professional historian nor writer, and my seafaring mind often jumps from thought to thought like a gale-bothered sea. I thus thrash about, hopefully not too much for the reader, who might not be used to my rough ways. 
as I tell new sailors come to serve the crown aboard one of her vessels, bound for this brand new world. Hold fast, bear your burdens like Christ on his cross. Above all, stay the course, and you will with your ship arrive as destined to your dreams. For me, the dream by 15 years of age in 1599 was to follow my uncle's footsteps into the service. My father John objected and kept me close in his shop, learning the carving and affixing of wood goods for sundry use in home and business. It was not for me, but I honored my father and did what I was told. At night I would burn a soft, low candle undersheet, read the books of travel, stories of Raleigh's conquest, Cabot's adventures, even of the Spanish discoverer Christopher Columbus. Once my mother caught me thus and suggested I be more careful with my dreams, she was convexed. On being sent to London and learning the acting trade, I never would have so guessed, but it turns out my mother had her own secrets, kept from father and the rest of us at home in Talgarth, Breckenshire. The hills and rivers of our land inspired her to raise her children dutifully, but beneath the soft, low candlelight of her own seclusive retreats, she had amassed a journal of writings, stories, and poetry, claiming to me in stealth at the turn of the new century that she was in knowledge of a certain man in London who acted on the stage, wrote plays, and other verse. She had convinced my father that I might benefit from more schooling abroad, and that in only two weeks' time I was to board a coach, packed for a new adventure among the burgeoning world of English professional theater. This man she mentioned, uh, William Shakespeare, had formed a company, and I was to intern among them, cleaning their theater and learning the lines of plays, to be on the ready in case a substitute was needed for absented players. That father assented to this plan was a shock, but then I began to know he had long grown tired of my lackluster work in his shop. Although he objected to the maritime service for its inherent dangers, he could not for long argue with his wife that a smaller trip and stay in London might broaden my horizons and make a better man of me. He hoped I might learn the carpentry trade some day, but with the winds acquiesced to this acting apprenticeship, as it might teach discipline applicable to any trade, even woodworking in his shop. I was at least partially content and curious of what was ahead. I recalled an interest in fancy and poems when young, and had contrived to write Anne a verse in my crude, youthful fashion. But all of that was lost at our lost love, and a hearing of our defeat of the Spanish Armada, to Columbus's adventures, and John Cabot, the nobility of Sir Walter Raleigh's service to the Queen. Mainly since Anne's was a forbidden love, the verse no longer did us flow, like a rock bed where a stream roareth at one time but hath stopped when God halteth the rain for enough successive moons. It pained me to leave my mother, brothers, sisters, Talgarth, the mountains, and my sweet Anne, but soon after the new year and the Queen's forty-third of her reign, I shoved off for a place I had only heard about since my schooling days, this London on the Thames, so popular from Roman times to present day. I could hardly imagine living amongst thousands of people, clamoring here and there, for how could one hear the birds sing? Will I get there and miss my homeland as much as I fear? The Thames soundeth a mighty stream, but can it compare to our quaint inlets and yield as much joy as our annual return to River Wye on the hills of my beating heart, the Wales countryside, the grazing sheep and nature of my youth? Mother packed a copy of William Shakespeare's published poems so that I might learn of the man and his writings. It is said that his high place in theater rests with his pen over his performing. But of his writings I have read so far, I must confess they are long and laborious. Should I ever be taken into confidence or friendship, I should whisper at Bill to shorten his verse 
consider stronger poems of 14 or so lines. These epics won't sell in my unlearned country opinion. I spotted a journal in mother's drawer and doubled back once to view her own writings, found them interesting, sweet, and mercifully brief. If the reader spiteth verse for a conceited art form of authors making unintelligible puzzles to confuse as much as beautify truth, please skip past my mother's poems, herein printed for thee. Abdication God, keep me low, and let me never aspire to a throne or castle of gold. For there with you above, in my low station below, I may truly with thee grow. While at a human high, with crowns on heads and title, I can forget thee, that you alone, Lord, are in command, not I, that none here truly know. I therefore here and now do abdicate any lust or greed for more than I have, allowing me the joy of a mother, the duty of a wife, the humility to smile at rain, aware your blessing is the colored bow upon its end. Guide us all as a friend. The power is yours as we walk the path of happy destiny upon the earth. These rivers, rocks, hills, and green life to eat and view. It seems a gift to me from you. Thank you privately, and bless us, my true king and nation. This my humble abdication. On why? We'll arrive soon, I'm sure. A picnic on why? Dreams of sun, the clouds break soon. We'll dine on why. Soft memories of my own youth remind me to take my young here. My husband deserves this trip, as do my children, dear. Where we end in life could be the same as where we start, if in good principle we do try. Golden waves return to me on the river Y. Then she wrote of a Talgarth panther, and I would include the work here, if I did not so greatly fear boring my readers with too much verse, some day perhaps. In the meantime, enjoy those two pieces of my mother's labor, although I see no promise in unmetered, free verse. It is as if she hath no respect for rule nor royalty. Critics would scoff and certain monarchs would imprison subjects for so separating the church and the crown. Henry VIII stood not for critique of his throne and to keep his daughter our queen from invoking his very just but stern treason act. I think the best place for my mother's verse might very well be the drawer in which I had found it. But in this printing, I risk all in hopes no royal eyes are overly offended at it. London Just as I had thought, I was somewhat underwhelmed by the hurried bustle of London, England, my eyes first gazing on it from the Cardiff coach on 13 March, year of our Lord, 1600. I was dropped off not far from my proposed place of apprenticeship, where the clap of horses' hooves and people's voices yelled out our own human import weakly against my perfect memory of Talgarth streams through green, pure country living. The theater, called The Globe, was brand new, rising 30 feet above the ground in its many-sided circle of green oak timbers, overlooking the famous River Thames, so iconic and historical, and crowded. Looking at it for a moment was enough to convince me it had nothing on the river Y in my own country. How I longed to return to my home before I had even put down my bags in this behemoth of a town. Someone told me en route that they had learned a census counted 250,000 souls in London recently. That seemed impossible, but as a coveted location that had seen so many invasions over the years, it makes sense that such a place would fancy so large a population as possible. 
if for no other reason that it could defend itself better. I would reduce it to a quaint town of 2,000 souls if quiet, serenity, and enjoying nature were the goal. But those days are over, and good luck to any army that tries to overtake her as she stands today. A small town might go down to any Caesar with ambition and a few noble men of combat. But a giant such as London in the year I visited its brand new Globe Theatre could by my count raise the greatest army in the world by sheer force of numbers. So I felt safe but homesick as I found the address of my lodgings, put down my things, and rang the front door. Finding Bottom The place was strange, my activities rather mundane, cleaning the Globe Theatre, ushering patrons to their seats so they could watch the shows at night or during the afternoon matinees. I met Mr. Shakespeare for the first time, and he gruffly told me my duties, wished me well. I told him my mother hath enjoyed his recently published verse, and this lightened his mood. He looked at me for the first time there in the theater antechamber, sized up my qualities. Into my soul itself I did his thing. Are you a writer, Rob? He inquired after a moment. Dear me, no, sir, I replied. Not as thou art, but my mother doth write lines like your honor, crudely and not professional-like, but she doth fancy herself a writer. It may be in your blood, Rob, was the actor's reply, and that was all for two months, whilst I went about the cleaning and ushering, closing up the theater after their shows, which always enjoyed a good venture, and the crowd laughed and cheered, and on occasion they would cry or shriek. The plays were drab and dark for my humble taste but I was in knowledge that the spring season would bring an annual comedic favorite called A Midsummer Night's Dream, making me wonder why it was not performed during the summer. But I dared not question the theater manager, a Mr. John Roskins, nor would I ever question the actors or producers of the plays. Mr. Shakespeare himself was someone I never approached nor spake unto, unless he did call in some way to me first. Before the spring rehearsals, Mr. Shakespeare made his second formal overture unto myself, motioned me to the side of the stage. Rob, he called, we will need you to practice the lines of a character in our play this summer, to study Mr. Ralston's part, for he is prone to coughs and ill. Horror exuded my every pore, the great actor and writer before me, trying to assuage me with more technicalities. Do not fear, Rob, it is a straightforward part. Can you learn lines and recite them verbatim? I answered that I thought I could do so based on my schooling, but... Do not protest so, Mr. Watkins, the actor commanded with a smile. You will be used only in case Mr. Ralston's voice shall fail. Practice the lines of the part in this book labeled and underlined in red ink. Play him earnestly and as a hero. I took the book and saw underlined a certain personage called Nick Bottom, Weaver, and I thought I could play a weaver if forced. He is a misunderstood hero at times, Mr. Shakespeare instructed and he must undergo hardship and physical transformation. Some might even laugh at him, but you'll not waver in your earnestness and heroic efforts. And with that, Mr. Shakespeare carried on his rehearsal, me at my cleaning duties, at that time helping also in the current production with the costume maker and other sundry chores. My nights at the river lodgings were different after that day than they had been, for now by candlelight I did endeavor to understand, read, and remember by rote every single line a Midsummer Night's Dream called for Nick Bottom to speak. I found his character noble, heroic, as Mr. Shakespeare said, misunderstood perhaps, but definitely abused. Soup! I heard suddenly 
From outside my lodging's door, the room was a ten-foot cube of relative comfort, complete with breakfast and supper services. The matron of the house was surly and mostly sour, only with occasional glimpses of warmth. When she was kind, it was a brief sunshine soon clouded over, and to me, not even very welcome, as all kindness reminded me of home, for which I was oft sick. Sally Sumter was her name, but ma'am didst the trick. I opened the door, thanked that personage solemnly, for which I was given hot soup and water on a tray. Sally was not in a mood to speak, so moved on to other tins in lodgers. Sally's daughter was another matter completely. I had sworn and forsworn a thousand times to stay true to my cousin Anne, despite my mother's protestations. I had made promises to Anne herself, she to me, and I wrote her daily, although to her own address I could not send the notes. We had a sympathetic friend in Talgar, who facilitated our love from time to time, and it is to this person, a sheep herder named Franks, that I sent my written professions of love for my sweet Anne. A problem in this system arose when I laid my teenage eyes upon Diana Sumter, daughter of the aforementioned Sally Sumter, a shapely 15-year-old who accompanied her mother to serve the lodgers on Tim's Inn when she was not otherwise occupied by chores in town. Diana deserves a whole chapter, but then what would I tell my aunt after we had escaped to America, married, myself to publish this very work as a testament to triumph in rising above one's rank in English society? How things changed in short order. I swore my oath to one, so why did the Heavenly Father send me this tempting angel to drop off my meals on occasion, fluttering her rich green eyes at me shyly but alluringly? At night before sleep, less and less am I haunted by Mary Queen of Scots' last thought, less even by the hope of reuniting and eloping with my sweet Anne, and more am I beset with dreams of Deanna Sumter, the maid's daughter, and what it might be like to hold her in my arms forever. So went an entire year with the Globe Theatre, Mr. Shakespeare, Nick Bottom, and lodging on River Thames with Mrs. Sumter and her fair, captivating daughter, Deanna. I made no great steps forward in any direction, had forgotten for the time my desire to go abroad to make my fortune in the new world, and was extremely proficient at knowing the lines of Mr. Shakespeare's strangely heroic character, Mr. Bottom, who is turned into an ass mid-show, something Will, as he told me to call him one day, said was his cross to bear, but something that endeared him to the ladies, namely the queen of the fairies, the elegant and beautiful Titania. When I asked Will why such a beauty could not be played by an actual female, he laughed and remarked that our world was not ready for such feminine informality as making love on stage. I cleaned the said stage, the seating area, the lobby, the roof, and made many trips to send off and return dirty and cleaned clothing, some of which the personal items of Mr. Shakespeare. He invited me to dine with him in a room he used as his office and writing space, but I never saw his home in London, which many said was a fine lodging in the best part of town. At lunch, we went over the part of Nick Bottom and what I had learned. He also gleaned out of me my story of home, my cousin Anne, our forbidden union, and a little infatuation I had developed on the maid's daughter. He smiled approvingly, remembering back to his own youth and encouraging me to stay sharply and precisely true to myself and love whoever my heart doth call to love. To be true to oneself in love and life, Rob, is to live honorably, he said, and without honor you may as well not arise in the morning, for your life 
can have without it no real meaning at all. And we chewed our food, drank it down with warm ale, until we belched our pleasure and went back to work, he to his writings, me to my cleanings. He was a sharp, noble man, Mr. Shakespeare, but only it seemed if you enjoyed poetry and the theater. He was cold with anyone or anything not related to art, but about the theater or verse he was then composing, he did seem the most passionate man I had ever known or had the pleasure of meeting since. His words made me feel a glow in my heart that perhaps I could choose my own direction in the world more in a daily and dynamic way than I had previously considered possible, that I didn't have to marry myself to an old idea, but could on a daily basis check my feelings, adjust the ship and riggings to taste the weather of the day, and set a course. Our life goals were fine to behold, but changes in the weather deserved changes in our own plans, and a broken past love might be improved by a whole present one, if God above so willed for me. <laughs>